question for you, young lady. Every one of the kids in this house is happy except for you. Why is that? No, What's your problem? Stop it! All I can say is that my life is very complicated. I'm sorry, but I didn't get half of what he said. This is a real Canadian movie podcast, Independent Investigation. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week I'm talking to actor Peter Outerbridge about his new film, Level 16. Directed and written by Danishka Esterhazy, it also features a killer ensemble cast, including Katie Douglas from Mary Kills People, Selena Martin from Public Schooled, and Sarah Canning from a whole bunch of movies that we've already covered on our podcast, as well as The Vampire Diaries. It's opening in theaters across Canada starting on March 15th, 2019. And if you're listening to this episode in the future, there's going to be a VOD release coming soon. And if you're a fan of sci-fi, dystopian thrillers, or A Handmaid's Tale, you are going to want to check this one out. I liked it a lot. In the film, Peter plays Dr. Miro, a doctor in charge of the well-being of the young ladies of the underground bunker Vestalis Academy who are being taught feminine virtues in order to be adopted by good families. Or so you think. Or so we think. It's tough to talk about a movie like this without getting too spoilery, so just go watch the movie, then come back, hear Peter's angle on his character. But, uh, you know, who am I to tell you what to do? If you just want to dive right in, there's great stuff for you, too. Make sure you stay to the end when you hear about Peter's favorite Canadian film, because, oh boy, does he love this movie. Here's my chat with Peter Outerbridge. You're in a new movie called Level 16. I've yeah. watched it. I like it very much. You're a part oh, of it. How did that happen? <laughs> well, somebody wrote a script. Uh-huh. And then, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did it happen? You know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to say that, you know, I, I sit around at my house and people uh, drop scripts off for me to read and, you know, and I either choose or pass, but... It's not really how it works. Basically, <laughs> my agent called me up and he said, I got an audition for you on Monday. It's for this uh, crazy sci-fi thing called Level 16. And so I went in and I auditioned and I, I got the part. Did you get to read the whole script before you went in? Did you have context? Uh, no, I only oh. read the sides. Oh, but, you know, you get it. But you get a breakdown, right? You get oh, a breakdown yeah. that says, you know, mysterious medical doctor. So, I mean, you sort of get, you know what the tone is supposed to be. You know yeah. that... You want to make it kind of strange and edgy and weird. So Totally. I mean, all of us have seen Handmaid's Tale, and this goes along that line, but this definitely has a twist of its own and its own voice and its own flavor. Um, yeah. How did you look at the character and approach it? Because uh, you're playing a character with ulterior motives. I spoke to Danishka about this for quite some time, and we ba- we basically thought that, you know, Here's a guy. I mean, this kind of stuff, not this kind of stuff directly <laughs> without giving anything away. Yeah. Bizarre types of medical science and medical research and, and stuff like that does occur all around the world. I mean, they are cloning human beings in Asia. So th- there's a certain amount. I think she was sort of trying to tap into the idea that if you're a scientist or if you're someone with some fantastic idea that you think should be brought to light in you know the, the annals of history you're going to seek out whatever country has the lightest ethical laws right mm-hmm. now if ultimately anybody who gets into this kind of thing you know they don't start off by being a mad scientist they obviously think that i mean i i genuinely think that dr miro at the beginning of it all 
probably did think that his research would go a long way towards uh, accident stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like, I mean, that kind of surgery is actually happening in the world yeah. right now. So I think that he probably had a system or a uh, a method that would require uh, tissue of a certain type uh, that in order to perfect his methods, he would not be allowed to uh, practice in North America. Mm-hmm. So he had to seek elsewhere i think in our movie it's the soviet union mm-hmm. um and there again to get funding he then had to corrupt his 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 motives get corrupted because in order to get the money he now has to do the research for a particular clientele so i think that he he's one of those guys that gets in deep thinking that they can get out eventually and that eventually his work will come to light and he will be a great historical doctor yeah. of some kind. And I think that he sort of goes down that rabbit hole and gets caught and he gets caught up in it. Yeah, And nobody wants to be the bad guy, right? And it's uh, especially when you get into the realm of science and advancement. I have a friend who's exactly. a, a nuclear physicist who is like, oh, man, I wish we could just launch people into space to see what happens still. We got so <laughs> far doing that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So you... So, and, you know, and, and in his particular case, right, he, 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 like anybody else, he has justified it to himself by saying, you know, uh, th- these particular people or these particular girls need help. Mm-hmm. And so he has sort of made a deal with himself that at least he's giving them something that they never would have had. Do you know what I mean? He's, yeah. he's, he's sort of, he's come up with a twisted logic in order to justify uh, this completely heinous thing that he's doing. But, you know, he sleeps at night. He thinks that what he's done is as he's dotted all his I's and he's crossed all his T's and his, he's ethically clean. In a um, beautiful drawing room surrounded by beautiful women and movies that he loves. So he's doing well. <laughs> exactly. Right. So <laughs> it, it could be worse. Now, unfortunately, he happens to be you know, financed by the Russian mob, which is nobody that you want to get into bed with. No, so. but it depends on, well, obviously they put you in something that looks like an elementary school built in the 70s. So obviously mm. they're not dealing with huge budgets. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a lot of twists in this film. It goes all over the place. When you read the full script, what in your actor brain sort of lit up about it? I think I've always been a big fan of, of things like The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and, mm. and, and stuff that is exploring uh, exploring some kind of ethical question. And then at the end, there's some sort of a hook that makes you sort of jump. And so I think, I I don't think I know that while I was reading the script, I knew it was going somewhere. And so I kept trying to, before I turned each page, I kept trying to think, okay, is this going to be the hook? Is this going to be the hook? Is this going to be the hook? So when I finally got to the end, I was like, Oh my God, (laughs) I, I did not see that coming. Okay. All right. So, I mean, here, I, you know, I think there's, uh, yeah, here again, I don't want to give too much away because I think that's the beauty of the film is that you, you, you know, something odd is going on here Yeah. and uh, your mind is just sort of, you, you sort of spend, I haven't seen the film cause I, I rarely watch. Um, I enjoy reading the script to me. That's the, the, the fun story. Um, and then after that, I, I hand it over to the director and, and the audience. But I think that the audience, hopefully, if they, if they, if, if Danishka did her job right, that while they watch this movie, they will have that same kind of journey 
like, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to end badly, but I don't know how it's going to end. And that when they find out really what's going on, it, it, it should be the last thing that occurs to them. <laughs> oh, Peter, I got to tell you, watching it uh, for the first time, too, I was like, okay, I'm getting into a Hands Maze Tale kind of thing. I know exactly what show I'm going to watch. I'm waiting for something terrible to happen. The twist is not something I would have expected. And that, of course, mm-hmm. is the brilliance of it. It's also a very stylized piece. It's very specific and, and beautiful. It's beautifully shot. I wish you could see it just because it's gorgeous. Um, but when you're doing a style-based piece, what's your role? as the actor in that how do you prepare I don't I don't I just do my job so I you know and I, I show up I know what I'm doing and I'm a, I'm a very also I'm a very technical actor so I think <laughs> the first time I met Danishka I said listen I, I am not a method guy uh, and I'm not, I'm not precious at all. And I, I take my work very seriously, but I, I'm a technician. Uh, so if you want me to scream louder, just say scream louder. <laughs> you know, I don't need motivation. I don't need, you know, so if you need the performance to be bigger, just say, I need it to be bigger. If you need it to be smaller, just say, I need it to be smaller. And I think she really appreciated that because <laughs> it kind of makes things really easy to work with at that point. Like, you know, at that at that point, the director can just like literally walk over to the actor and go, OK, that was shit. I need you to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and I need it to be much bigger um, <laughs> because I think a lot of the times uh, the style is not immediately apparent to the performer because they're 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 in it. It's like sort of being in a painting. You're not you're not standing back and looking at the painting. You're one of the colors of the painting. So you kind of have to or at least I have to uh, rely on the director to to make sure that they're being honest with me and that if I'm not the color they need, they have to, you know, they have to get it out of me somehow. So you're the part of the palette. That makes sense. I'm a part of the palette, yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I mean, you're working with one hell of a palette here. I mean, this is a stacked cast of young talent and veterans, and it's bananas. I know, right? It's yeah. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. In terms of the style, I mean, the set was so great. Like, yeah. the, the, the job that the, the set deck guys and the art department did... You know, it was just creepy. It's just always, it was just always creepy on the set. <laughs> Which makes your job easier. Exactly, exactly. And you're also working with all this young talent. There's a bunch of veterans. How did that sort of work? Um, and what kind of director is Danishka? Did she, like, keep you guys separately, separate, or did you get to interact at all? Oh, no, no. We were all together, yeah. No. Danishka is a fantastic captain. Like, she she just makes everybody comfortable and... and uh, She's very easy to work with. At least I found her very easy to work with. Um, it's always fun. The set is fun. Uh, and the actors all got along. You know, what can I say? We, we all sort of, we knew what we were in for. Yep. Uh, it was a uh, down and dirty guerrilla filmmaking and everybody uh, rose to the occasion and, you know. It was like going to summer camp. It was great. What can I say? Of course. That's what films are. They're summer camp, right? Is that the attraction of working on an indie film versus like something that's a little more big budget? You show up, you do your arc, you disappear? Um, no, I think the attraction of working on indie films is that the scripts are just a little bit more interesting. They're not as – they haven't been as um, – they haven't been as uh, – uh, what's the word? Polished? mutated oh, okay. by uh, by a studio into mm-hmm. something that is more commercially uh, you know something that c- more that covers all the bases commercially 
Okay. Um, you can get a watered down story, which still can be a fantastic story. I mean, it can hit all of the main points and make you cry and make you laugh and all that. But I think the independent films are interesting because usually, first of all, they're auteur pieces. They're the writer director. Um, and so you're sort of, you're part of the process, you know, you're, you're, you're working with this person and, um, there's a bit of dramaturgy involved and you're trying to break down scenes and, you know, take stuff out and add stuff in and, and turn it all around. I think that to me is the attraction to indie films because the, the, there just seems to be something more organic and, and raw to the process, <laughs> which is not to say I don't love, <laughs> love working on those big Hollywood films too, man. But you know, they're, it's, it's, they're, they're two different animals, right? Like I think in independent films, you're, you're actually encouraged Sometimes, well, most of the time, you're encouraged by the auteur to participate. Whether it's their first film or second film, it's usually you know they're, they're just starting, so they're sort of they're willing to embrace opinions and ideas and collaboration and, and, and all that stuff. And so you sort of you you get into that. You know, you don't have to you don't have to hope that you'll be heard by the director. The director's actually encouraging you to you know, <laughs> jump right in and get your hands dirty. Um, whereas when you're working on the big studio films, you, well, I just shut up and do what I'm told mm -hmm. because they already know what they're making and what they want. Um, so on those processes, I don't, you know, I, I don't even try to get involved. I show up, I'm grateful as hell. I hit my mark. I say my lines, you know, I, I get directed as, as needed. And then I go home because that's really what you're there for. You're there. You're there on the studio's dime, and they know what they want. Yeah, because th they've been doing it for a long time. That's why you get paid the big bucks, right? That's, that's why they're that's... just driving yachts of gold directly to your house. <laughs> yachts, <laughs> yachts, cauldrons of stuff, cauldrons of melted gold. Yes, that's the standard unit of payment. I understand in Hollywood, mm -hmm. the cauldron. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you obviously came up in the 80s and 90s. You were doing a ton of indie films. Uh, you're in a bunch of iconic Canadian films. Um, have you seen things really change for Canadian film at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that on the world stage, certainly, uh, I think Canadian film industry is, is definitely getting a lot more recognition. Uh, you certainly, you see that at Cannes a lot more and uh, even at the Oscars. But certainly, I think television, uh, film and television, uh, where the television industry has certainly picked up. I mean, we're along, we're a far cry away now than we were back in even the 80s, where you could you could turn on the TV and you could spot the Canadian-made television just because it just didn't look right. You know, it just looked a little like it was playing catch-up, right? But I think it's caught up. And I think that the stuff they make in Canada now is is internationally accessible. I think that... Uh, it has a huge market in Europe as well as in the States and especially in a lot of these streaming uh, services now like Netflix. You know, you can be binge watching some show and, and not really know at all that it's Canadian until somebody points it out to you. And then you're like, oh, my God, that's not a bad show. Where did that come from? And I mean, it's yeah. amazing how streaming has also increased the reach of Canadian film internationally. I mean, Netflix, yeah. uh, Shutter, these are all really great purveyors of Canadian content. Yeah. And I think one of the things I think that stayed the same, though, for better uh, and certainly I think why a lot of the American production companies are still coming up to Canada is because, uh, you know, Canadians know how to make product really well, really quickly. And, you know, you know, this Canadian expression, pitter patter, let's get at her. They, they, and Canadians really do that. You know, they don't, 
they don't sit around and waste a lot of time. They know they've got to get 13 pages done today, and it's got to look good. And I think that American production companies really appreciate that that work ethic. So, um, and I think that that's one thing that Canada will always sort of have, which is, I think, great. But and it's because we grew up making independent films for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, even a lot of the stuff that I can think of, uh, there was like that indie 90s revolution, um, Bruce uh, McDonald and uh, Don McKellar and everybody coming up that way. And it's like, oh, we can do it, too. And we can tell our unique stories and have these unique voices and, and play on the world stage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Looking at um, something like Level 16, obviously we keep talking about Handmaid's Tale, but like mm-hmm. a movie like this couldn't really exist without Margaret Atwood. Um, and you also have, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know William Gibson is Canadian as well. He's American-Canadian. Yeah. Do you think there's something very Canadian about the dystopian story? You know, I yes and no. I think can it, I just read a collection of Canadian short stories uh, that were all like, uh, it, was, it was Blood and Ice Blood and Ice? Yeah, anyway, it was a collection of short stories that were all post-apocalyptic stories. Mm. Um, and each one was different. One was a zombie apocalypse, one was solar flares, one was nuclear annihilation. All the different and so ways they, we're going to die, yep. Exactly, and they had all these great Canadian science fiction writers do these short stories. And the, the neat thing about it in the, um, in the preface was the difference between Canadian post-apocalyptic stories and everybody else is that Canadians write you know, this is the post-apocalypse, and now let's do something about it. <laughs> and they get and they get to work fixing the problem. <laughs> so, so I think that I think that that yes, I do think that there is a, a I think there is a market or certainly an interest in post-apocalyptic uh, fiction in Canada. Maybe it's because of horrible winters um, <laughs> that are only going to get worse. But there's also something very hopeful about our storytelling, uh, which is that there can be a solution to this problem. There can be a happy ending to this. We just have to we just have to work at it. We just have to figure it out. So I think that might be one of the reasons why uh, a lot of Canadian sci-fi is, is really good because it it doesn't it doesn't uh, sugarcoat the story. It makes it pretty grim. Handmaid's Tale is a perfect example of it. But even Handmaid's Tale has a little bit of a hopeful ending. You know, the book at least. Yeah, it's something we've explored a few times on this podcast because, of course, you got Cronenberg as well. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. That's, thanks for bringing that up. I was going to say that, that Danishka, I think she's she really falls in the vein of Cronenberg as well as yeah. not just Margaret Atwood, not just William Gibson, not just that sort of future dystopia. But certainly I think she's influenced by Cronenberg for sure. I never, I, I never even talked to her about that. But when I think about it now, I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of that in there. I mean, just like the the... the well, I don't want to give it away, right? But certainly that the aspect of the film that has that is a very Cronenbergian type of thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, as I was watching it, I really thought about the movie Shivers mm. um, because it's that single location. The intensity just keeps ramping up until it all explodes at the very end. And that one is a much, I mean, depending on your point of view at the end of Shivers, it's either a really good thing or a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, this one here, it's kind of got that same thing where like you have the breakout at the end and it's it's remarkable. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's drawing from that but becoming its own thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've got two more questions for sure. you and they're ones I asked all of my guests. Uh, the first one is, do you have a ca- favorite Canadian film that you would recommend to our listeners? In terms of films, I, you know, the, the one, I mean, there's, I have so, there's so many that sort of are popping through my head and I don't want to like say one and leave anybody out. So, so <laughs> Have someone call but, you up and be but, like, what about me? But I, but I will say one thing. 
um, because we were talking about Cronenberg earlier. If people haven't seen, um, um, oh God, now I can't even, now I can't remember the name of the film. Jesus, <laughs> what happens? It's the it Russian mob really one. Mean. Oh, Eastern, Eastern Promises. Promises. Um, if you haven't seen Eastern Promises, you have to because that movie, whether you like the movie or not, there is a scene in that film. You've seen it? Oh yeah. Okay the the Turkish bath scene is genius. It's it's like every human being's worst nightmare. And I think, it, like, when I watched that, I, I thought to myself, okay, Cronenberg had that nightmare. He woke up the next day <laughs> and he wrote a whole film around it because it's it's just so like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine that. It's It's so brilliantly conceived that as soon as those guys show up, and there's poor Vigo sitting there, and God love Vigo, and God love Vigo for loving Canada so much. Um, yeah. y- you just go, this is this is this is horrible. This is this is awful. And even where they, even where he gets injured, is just like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's awful. So, and then of course the outcome it makes it all worthwhile because it it is one of the most badass scenes ever written ever performed and ever shot it's it's just an incredible scene and it's one of those scenes that you just you want to keep looking away from the screen but you can't you you just you're transfixed by the by the graphicness of it and i don't mean graphicness just visually emotionally uh visually everything you're just you're just caught you're caught like a deer in the headlights watching that scene Everybody talks about Stephen King as being the master of horror, and I've always believed it's Cronenberg because he's so good at, like you said, tapping into those little things of nightmare, the fundamental, like, creepy crawlies that lie within us, being like losing a partner to a debilitating disease in the fly, or like having your your family broken apart, like in History of Violence. Like, he's hitting all the notes, but everything feels so cathartic at the end. Exactly. And and in that particular scene that I'm talking about, it's, it's like literally... How could you be any more vulnerable? It is it 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 yeah. defines the idea of vulnerability, and it's just so horrible. Anyway, <laughs> so if people haven't seen Eastern Promises, they got to see it just for that scene, the Turkish bath scene. Yeah. Peter, if you want to come on the show and talk about Eastern Provinces, you are more than welcome <laughs> to. We would love to have you. <laughs> uh, the other question I have for you is: What do you think Canada needs to support its artists more? Uh, an overhaul of the tax system. <laughs> you are the first person to say that. Yeah, Good work. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, to help our artists in Canada more, we need to somehow stagger it so that you know they're not carrying over a tax credit from from the year before. I mean, it's it's very difficult for artists to try to get a foothold because you can have a really good year and you get you know taxed up the ass and then. The next year you have a horrible year, but the government expects you to pay the same taxes that you paid last year. So you spend all year playing catch up and yet you had a horrible year. So at the end of the year, you got nothing and you're, you know, you you just keep seesawing back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, unless you have a really good run where you're, uh, you know, you're selling your paintings, you're selling your stories, you're selling your music, you're, you're working on a show you're constantly in that up and down and up and down and up and down. And, um, I get it. Like, how do you, how do you quantify an artist? How do you say to the, uh, CRA, uh, no, here's my artist license. You know, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you, you can, you can get a number, you can show 
on your T4 slip that you were in movies or you sold paintings or, or whatever. But, you know, unless unless they're going to start handing out, like I said, unless they're going to start handing out artist licenses, uh, we're sort of stuck in that rut of uh, going from one good year to one bad year to one good year to one bad year, but having the CRA just treat us like it's all good years. Every year is the same. So, yeah, it's it's very difficult to sort of get above that. And I can't help but wonder as we move more and more towards a contractor system as opposed to people having full-time jobs, mm. if that is going to be addressed. Well, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right, you know, so. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was so awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.